Hi, and welcome to Sustainability Solved, the sustainable business podcast. I'm Will Richardson, and I'm the founder and CEO of the Green Element Group, incorporating Green Element, Compare Your Footprint, and of course, Sustainability Solved. We've been helping businesses become more sustainable since 2003. In the midst of a global economic downturn, sustainable businesses need to grow and innovate to ride out uncertain times. And that means more capital. But how easy is it to get investment? And what are your options? The EU recently announced the Green Deal Industrial Plan, aiming to cut red tape and fast-track net zero projects in Europe, making 250 billion euros available for greening industry. Alongside this, the US's Inflation Reduction Act also includes a $369 billion package for clean energy projects, and there have been calls for a similar scheme to boost businesses in the UK. Can UK businesses take advantage of the rush to go green? And if so, how? This podcast is brought to you by Good Citizens, an eyewear brand like no other. Born to untrash the planet of single-use plastic, use the discount code GREEN20 to get $20 off at goodcitizens.com.au. Today we're talking about investment in sustainable businesses. And I'm joined by John Dutrotsky, an investment partner at Giant Ventures, who builds and back purpose-driven companies solving the world's biggest problems. Victor Varkalowski, CEO and co-founder of Airly, who supply real-time air quality data for governments and businesses. In 2020, Giant helped Early raise $2 million in pre-seed funding. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you, Willa, for having us. Thanks for having us. I'm really looking forward to this and asking loads of questions. So, John, we're in an interesting time for businesses. Do you think there has been a downturn in business funding in the last 12 months globally? So, more capital has been raised in the last 12 to 24 months than ever before by investors. However, the pace of investment into companies has slowed down significantly. Now, I'm not a macro economist, so I won't bore you with all the details on why that happened. But essentially, we went from a zero interest rate environment where money was flooding into the market to try to chase returns to now there's a place where there actually are interest rates and gravity has returned into the system. Why this is good? Number one is, is that the best founders get started during economic downturns and or are building during economic downturns. The second thing is that this entropy has also created like a lot of talent that wants to move around to new companies and or start new companies. And then the third thing is you're actually able to really build relationships with your founders or with new companies in advance of actually making an investment because everybody's taken a breather, we've slowed down. There was a time 12 to 24 months ago where there was a thing called FOMO, fear of missing out. People would talk <laughs> about a company within a couple hours, it would get invested in and you felt like you missed it. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? You missed, missed the next best thing. Now there's a, I guess I would categorize it as JOMO, joy of missing out. You're like, oh, I missed a deal. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you're allowed to be a lot selective. So I think the headline on all of that is we've returned to normal. A lot of the tourists are gone and it's kind of back to status quo in the startup community, which is a really good thing. I like the getting to know the founders before you actually end up investing. I think that's really important. 
because it's a part yeah it's a marriage at the end of the day it's a marriage. Well, exactly it is a partnership <laughs> and it's one of the reasons why i've been so reticent about doing it <laughs> <laughs> i get it i think i think the average vc investment lasts longer than the average marriage and so god you that's know. a horrible statistic <laughs> there you go there you go victor you went through the investment process a few years ago how has the business benefited from the investment since then yeah, I, I think we, we raised first external funding from venture capital firms, and that was Giant Ventures in, in 2020, as you said. And I think I haven't realized before how helpful that can be for the business. And I think here that it's about four main areas. I think, first of all, is about expertise um, and industry connections. So all investors, uh, maybe not all, but some of them are uh, coming to the business with experience in the, in the sector. For us, it's a clean tech, it's a climate, and they can provide great insights and introductions to relevant people in the space, whether it's uh, hiring new people, trying to sell your product to potential customers. So their network is, is really massive. The second big thing for me is about mentorship and guidance and here i believe this is about me personally working with john on on weekly basis and getting guidance getting some support for me as the founder it's super important because i'm always reminding myself that i'm leading that company and i have great team but i do not have person that i can ask very openly for the feedback and sometimes like hear some tough words and i think it's good it's good for <laughs> for growth and for, for developing as the leader, as the founder. So this is something that is definitely, definitely important. And I was I, I, like, definitely we can't miss the financials. Yeah, because at the end of the day, all companies are going to raise money to grow faster and to invest that capital into your sales, marketing, product and technology. Without getting that money, it wouldn't be possible to build great products that we are building every day. So I think this is the next thing. and. I think the last one from my end is about some kind of alignment with values, with goals that we are having and being a part of that ecosystem. I think it's somehow connected with the thing that I mentioned at the beginning about getting an access to the network. But I'm thinking here from kind of different perspective. It's not even about getting introductions to relevant people, but being a part of the ecosystem who, first of all, are, are understanding uh, our vision. And the second thing about understanding the climate focus mission, which very often is long-term. What I mean by that is it's a long-term commitment and you need to get some patience, but also support in helping achieving these long-term objectives. So I think there are a few dimensions how working for VC firm can help the business. So it's a really, really great to have that sounding board and you can get some, some proper, very good yeah. feedback on, on your business. Yeah. But it's tough love, isn't it? I think it's really important, really important for any the firing business. squad. The yeah. firing squad. Yeah, and I think it's really important for any business and it's um to have that board to be able to say, No, you're an idiot. Why are you doing that? Because it's a safe space. John, areas or niches within sustainability that VCs are focusing in on at the moment and others they're not. I mean you want to think of venture as being the place where Capital can go into companies to create businesses that other wouldn't otherwise exist. And what I mean by that is quite simply, if you want to build a restaurant, there's largely like a pretty simple way to do that, right? Like that's a very competitive market. 
It's a pretty simple way to build that business plan. It is a solved problem on how to, to, to do that. But when, you know, you go to Krakow and see these physics grads who are tinkering with air quality monitoring that's essentially in the Stone Age, right? Like air quality monitoring today, these reference monitors that countries and cities use are these $50,000 ancient pieces of equipment mm. that are heavily regulated and so arcane and so awful, right? That a new paradigm needs to occur. Like today it's like the entire industry is in the fax machine era, right? <laughs> and so when you see these two physics grads who are going to completely change the paradigm, which requires regulatory breakthroughs, which requires innovation on the technology, that's where venture capital is really perfect for because it's a, it's a moonshot, right? Like it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's not a solved problem. Gotcha. You know, it's, 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 it's hard to know where the act, like what the actual innovation is going to be. Mm -hmm. And so it requires that type of venture capital investment. And so if you think within climate and sustainability, the entire economy is decarbonizing right now. Right. Mm. So everything from supply chain to automobiles to aviation to water management, you know, every single part of the value chain is either going through a decarbonization or essentially a new industrial revolution. So this is the reason why $100 billion of capital has been raised in the last two years is that there's suddenly this momentum, I think, from a generational standpoint for people to want to actually build this. And Climate 1.0, which was, you know, God bless all of our forefathers and, and foremothers who spent time on it. A lot of capital was put into science projects that never had any material to go to market or business case. Yeah. And so, you know, we're in a time now where we've learned from our grandfathers and grandmothers about, you know, you do need to play within the capitalism system in order to make a venture capital investment work. And so any area that isn't a science fair project and only that is potentially touchable by VC investment. Okay. Now, there are some areas that look a lot more like infrastructure um, mm. and or are so large in scale like nuclear that are likely to be government backed. But we're seeing more and more that there's a integration of public and private partnerships in those cases as okay. well. Brilliant. Interesting. Okay. And fix it. When you were talking to investors, did you find them asking a lot of the same questions about your business or different ones? That's an interesting one. I, I believe that we, we were, for the any fundraising event that we had in a business, we were really structured about the, about the process and we were preparing for that before starting the, the, the fundraising, whether it was pre-seed, seed or series A round. I think you can find some analogies and typical questions that investors are asking as they're getting to know your business. Of course, during the first meeting, there are very basic questions about the business model, about your pricing, your product, challenging status quo, which, which John mentioned when it comes to reference old equipment for us as air quality monitoring space. But then as you're taking the next steps, you're seeing the same similar questions. Maybe they're not the same, but similar, and they are, they are somehow repeating. And this is related to the business, to the technology, its defensibility. So we were always trying to build our 
FAQ and to be ready for that for that questions. And I think it's very similar to the sales process. I mean, as you are selling your product, you are re receiving very similar questions from your customers on the product, on the pricing, delivery times, etc., etc. So, and I think uh, being structured in whether it's a fundraising or the sales process is a good because then you can find these parallels and see what is really important for, for the VC investor or maybe for your potential customer. Because I think these processes are somehow similar because at the end of the day, you are selling a part of your company. And so I think that we are getting similar questions from some investors, although very often I was really, really surprised because someone was interested very specifically about, let's say, our technology and how we are using AI models to forecast their quality for the next 24 hours. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. That person really knows um, something about AI and, and that person is interested, but it also depends on the background of the, on the given person. Mm. But I think being structured when it comes to fundraising, it's important and it can massively help to increase your chances of, of raising the round. Yeah, okay. And John, how much money should a business ask to have invested in them? I mean, it's obviously down to the valuation, but is there an upper or limit when businesses are looking to raise funding and I guess this is coming from the fact that you know we're a profitable business and the questions I get asked is well how much money are you going to raise and if I'm honest it can be nothing because we've got a runway so the more money that's put in the faster we'll be able to scale does that put you off people listening will go okay fine I should be asking for this amount or what's the answer yeah I mean the simple answer is that now that gravity has returned to the venture capital and startup ecosystem, we're returning back to milestone-based funding. In the last 12 to 24 months, people would be able to raise tens of millions of dollars, in some cases hundreds of millions of dollars, pre-product, pre-revenue, and, and that was bad, right? Capital does not help you innovate, right? And in fact, a limit and scarcity actually helps you innovate. There was a study done where companies that had raised less than $100 million and then went public actually outperformed their peers who had raised more by five times, meaning they continued to innovate significantly over a long period of time thereafter, sense. and they had a culture of innovation. And so what do I mean by milestone-based funding? Well, if you're just a couple people with a deck and no product and no revenue, you really don't need much, just enough to be able to pay the most minimal ramen profitable salaries. And so I always recommend that people start off with accelerators. I was a part of Y Combinator, but there's a many other great accelerators that are out there. And these will really help to, I would like to call them like the training training camp first to the startup world of like put good habits in, in place, like build product, talk to customers, ship features, rinse and repeat. Don't go to conferences. Don't waste your time you know, talking on too many podcasts, like go just talk, just build product and talk to customers. Okay. Yeah. And so that, that's really to get the, the MVP out of the door, the minimum viable product. Once you actually have paying customers and you're starting to actually have revenue and you're and it's growing at like a decent clip and you're somewhere between, you know, 50,000 to a couple hundred thousand dollars of revenue, you could probably raise your first institutional round of venture capital at that point. Right. And you can call it whatever you want. It's typically a seed round. And most investors at that point in time are looking for ownership targets. If they're a fund, 
they have specific ownership targets because they need to re- return capital to their LPs, their limited partners. And or if they're an angel, they're looking to get a high return as compared to stocks and bonds and other asset classes. So not to like bore the audience here in the nitty gritty details, but what that means in short is if you're raising a couple million dollars and you want to sell 10 to 20% of your business at that time, well, you can do the math on what sort of the valuation is. From there, really the next hardest milestone is what is essentially known as product market fit. Product market fit is nothing more than a feeling that you can't make enough of whatever it is that you're producing and the market is pulling it out of you, out of your hands as fast as possible. And it's starting to grow at a pace that is anxiety inducing, right? (laughs) And if that's the case, then you're likely at sort of the series A or series B phase. Now, there's a lot of things that are rough around the edges at that point, but you're likely to raise anywhere between five to $20 million. You can add a new board member. You're selling 10 to 20% of the business at that period of time, plus adding an option pool for new executives to join. And that's a really sort of important milestone, you know, and Airly obviously has reached that having raised their Series A recently. And then from there, you go to what's called growth capital. Growth capital looks a lot like private equity in many ways in that it's like, this is a very repeatable business. It's doing north of 10 million revenue and growing 50 to 100% year over year. It has positive gross margins. It's cash flow break even. And it's got a strong executive team. It's de-risked a lot of the market problems, a lot of the product problems, all that kind of stuff. And those rounds are anywhere between 10 million to 100 million. And the valuations are anywhere between, you know, sort of call it 100 to 300. Now, those have come down significantly in all categories. I think the only place where valuations have not come down a lot is seed. Because the reality is, is if you're an investor and you invest at seed and a company becomes a billion-dollar company, then it's worth it to pay mm. 5 to $15 million valuation. And the math makes sense. So basically, that was a long-winded way to say that the traditional milestones-based funding that existed in venture capital for the sort of prior several cycles has now sort of returned and is back in vogue. And if you're not within those parameters, it's a very hard road to raise, unless you're a repeat founder who's had a successful exit in the past, and then typically people break a lot of rules. Yeah. No, you've answered the question really well. Thank you. That's actually really interesting. Victor, how did you decide on the figure you wanted to raise for early to start off with. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I need to... Th- John men- John- John's like, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think we, we were discussing internally. I, I mean, different stages, there was different discussion. On the first um, pre-seed funding, we were thinking mostly and looking at, at peers in, in our space. So looking at maybe not even air quality but climate solutions at that stage we were back then having a product but it wasn't as mature as it should be to go for the seed run so we went for that pre-seed and we were looking okay we just need to invest that amount of of money into product development into hiring so we built a business model and based on that we went for the race for then for the next round for the seed round we were saying okay we will 
aim for, for growth at that pace. We will try to get two years of runway. Therefore, based on our budget, we need to raise that amount of capital. And I think it's very, very similar with Series A. So for us, it was, it was a mix of different factors really, but generally data-driven approach, looking at our budgets, how much do we need to spend to reach our milestones, which right now are more on the revenue, previously was more on the product and delivering some, um, some product features. And yeah, based on that, we went for a race. Although, depending on the market and how market is reacting on, on your, on your mm, fundraising, you sometimes need to adjust your ambition levels and how you are thinking. We had one fundraise when we raised more than we expected. We had one fundraise when we raised less than we expected. So I think it really depends on the market too, because if you are getting the feedback from first investors that oh, yeah, you are aiming for too high, the valuation that you are aiming for is, is too big, probably you need to rethink that. And it can be in a different way. If you are getting a lot of interest from the market, then you can, you can go for a higher valuation, maybe to raise more capital. Yeah, there's no silver bullet when it comes to that. There is multiple factors that are impacting fundraising and the amount of capital that you are going for, yeah, from, to, to get from the market. Mm. Okay. And were there particular projects you wanted money for, or was it investment across the board? I mean, uh, so when we started, Joseph, we are air quality monitoring solutions. So we started with the hardware solution to measure air quality. We have small IoT sensors that are um, tracking air pollution data like every five minutes. And thanks to the fact that we made small, easy to install devices, you can put hundreds of them in every city. So therefore you have much, much better uh, granularity and resolution. So we started as a hardware business, but then we realized that there is big, big potential for us to do something with that data. What I mean by that is to not only present that data, but also provide forecast for next 24 hours and predict how air quality will look like next day to make some smart decisions as a mayor of the city or the head of environment at the city council. And so that was the next step. And that was the second phase of our product. So getting the data, presenting it, but also predicting. And I think the next phase of our product development, because we, we are still thinking that early is well positioned to provide end-to-end -end solution for air quality monitoring and control. We want also to provide some insights and more analytics when it comes to air quality. So imagine that you are the mayor of the city, you're introducing low emission zone, and you want to see how your actions are helping with improving air quality and you can't control yeah. what you can't measure so therefore you need air quality data you need to have insights you need to check you need to analyze and i think with the current growth and development in ai space there's there's massive massive opportunity for companies like ours to deliver more insights based on data in an intuitive format for decision makers to improve air quality, because at the end of the day, our mission is to repair the air, to improve air quality, to save lives and, and to avoid 7 million premature deaths every year globally caused by air pollution. These numbers are shocking. And for us, it's, it's like pandemic in a slow motion. The air pollution is killing us. So we believe that you need to have data to take some actions to repair the air, to avoid these premature deaths globally. Yeah. Okay. And John, can a business scale too fast if it has too much capital invested? 
Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Hell yeah. You know, I think that a lot of people look at, like, Airly is in one of these really unique categories of startups that's both bits and atoms. What I mean by that is, you know, software and the technology around that, as well as the hardware, those two things come together. Extremely difficult. Requires a very, very exceptional founder to work with both physics and computer science. And what we saw in the past was whenever there was a physics problem related to a startup, and even just software only, when a lot of capital was deployed, people just felt like they had to spend it, right? Like, let's do a bunch of commercials. Let's hire a bunch of people. Let's, you know, build a new product, right? And that burns a lot of cash. And so... I think that one of the things I talked about earlier was this milestone-based funding. One of the main reasons that you want to keep those constraints is that constraint breeds innovation, right? If we know that we only have 24 months of runway, we have to become extremely resourceful, right? And we can't spend our way into innovation. I'll give you a really personal example. So my prior company was called Star City. We built a form of housing known as co-living, and we built the software that powered it. So when you move to a city, you could click and move in in less than 24 hours. When the average search for an apartment was 30 days, we provided everything fully furnished, and you could live for one month, you could live for three months, you could live for six months, you could live for 12 months. It was a revolutionary way to move to new cities at about a third the cost of a studio apartment in most major cities. We were going up against the 100 billion pound gorilla that was WeWork. And Adam Newman and WeWork were known for the office version of what's known as co-working. And they made a, a press release sort of after we started our company that they were gonna move into the housing space. Now they had tens of billions of dollars to spend and they failed miserably in the co-living space. It was like widely publicized. And he, I don't know if he was on the record of saying this, so don't take this verbatim, but essentially what we heard him say was that this is such a difficult market that you cannot spend your way into success here, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's highly design-centric. You need to innovate on the built form. There's all sorts of IoT components that need to help with keyless entry and the software that helps to understand when people move in. So all that is to say is that you know, all the capital in the world likely can't solve the biggest problems. And so there are some exceptions to that, right? What we're seeing today in large language models with artificial intelligence just requires a lot of capital for compute power. But the algorithms and the AI models that sit on top of those, that just requires really intelligent programming. So there are, there are exceptions to that rule, but largely speaking... If you see a company that's raised a lot of money with has, that has not had a lot of progress, that's usually a big red flag. Yeah. I'd say that the climate and sustainability industry is probably falls into that category of you can't buy your way into it because most of what Victor and I do and others in the industry is quite... It's, it's, it's academic-based. There's science behind say the consultancy that we deliver or the 
or the soft you know the, the science behind the software that we're delivering there's that we're not just software developers there's actually a thought process that's gone behind because we know the problem that we're facing or solving and so i can see definitely see that yeah and and if i can add on top of that i think that we are seeing exactly the same thing in air quality space i mean most universities as they are interested in environment they are testing low-cost sensors they are testing new technology to measure air quality but there are some challenges with adopting it on a mass scale and the reason for that is the lack of legislation lack of guidance from central governments how to use the new technology to measure air quality faster better with much better resolution and i think this is really challenging and all people in that segment are saying that there are some use cases for low-cost sensors and they are massively helpful for monitoring for change. So as I said, if you are introducing low emission zone, if you want to measure air quality next to schools, you need to have sensing technology and to provide that data in real time with hyper-local resolution. Although the current legislation is not supporting that and we are in the place where we feel that technology is working and the universities and the top experts from air quality space are confirming that and at the same time the adoption is not fully there because there is no recommendations or the guidance on central governments so i think this is exactly what you were saying will when it comes to adoption of new technologies but i'm talking from air quality space of course mm. but i think it's very similar for climate and other great technologies yeah. that we are we are seeing yeah. i'd agree one of the craziest times in clean tech was in the 2000s and actually one of the most storied venture capitalists of all time john doer from kleiner perkins like total legend almost tarnished his reputation because he threw billions of dollars at Cleantech 1.0 at what amounted to a lot of science fair projects that were like, you know, people in a lab who spent hundreds of millions of dollars on stuff that was never going to work. And I think out of like 70 investments, only two of them ever returned their full amount of capital. Three of them went public and they were, they traded well below their initial public offering price afterwards. Um, so it was like a total boondoggle, right? Mm-hmm. Of like, and again, I don't, I don't think that there was the right mixture in the gumbo dish of elements, combining both good regulatory practices, good capital hygiene, a strong bench of founders and employees who sort of understood the space, you know, sort of all of the systemic tailwinds and that sort of major call to action from society to solve this problem. It wasn't as, as, as big of an issue back then. So that was an example of kind of going back in, back to your earlier question about when can too much capital be a bad thing? It, it really was. And, it, and I'm like so grateful that we're back to a place where people are being pragmatic about the right amount of investment um, yeah, uh, I think today. That makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. I think if we could go off on, our, on a break, that'd be great. And we'll come back after that. This podcast is brought to you by Good Citizens, an eyewear brand like no other, born to untrash the planet of single-use plastic. Good Citizens turns a discarded single-use plastic bottle into a pair of 100% recycled frames. It took them 752 days and 2,500 plus failed attempts to perfect the first pair of sunglasses. 
Even more unique, the modular system means you can repair each part in seconds. So if your dog munches on them, it's all fixable. From an entire window in Selfridges, London, to global awards to speaking at the UN, the Good Citizen story has made news headlines around the world. Use the discount code GREEN20 to get $20 off at goodcitizens.com.au and help untrash the planet. And now, Victor, what difference does it make with the type of investor you work with? I think there are definitely there are different investors. And even thinking from our perspective, we are mostly working with investors that really care about climate and they are aligned with our values and our goals. And I think it's, it's massively, massively helping when they are sharing your vision and understand the climate focus mission because you need to understand the things that we were chatting before the break about the market adaptation and the challenges that we are facing and it's very difficult to understand for investors who don't work in the climate and who don't work with climate funders so i think this is really helpful for us i mentioned at the beginning of of, of our meeting that having um investor with a great network in that space can somehow help massively i have some examples of, of our investors including giant who made a bunch of introductions to big corporates to local governments and we converted them into paying customers so probably without having that network without having that link mm. it would be really really difficult for us to reach out to these people it's giving you as a young company a big boost of credibility and if you are getting that warm introduction from your investor to potential customer it's much easier to sell your vision because someone else said oh this company is good i put my money into that company to support their vision so i think network is a is, a, is definitely a big big thing so when we were uh, fundraising we're definitely looking at investors with with a good network who can help us with relevant introductions in the segments that we we want to sell to and same for hiring i mean if if investors can join you in the hiring process and maybe test some candidates at the last stage of the hiring process this is massive massive boost because they are very often more experienced than you are and, and they can help with finding the best people for for the business and 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 i think these things so supporting and sharing your network can make a massive massive difference to the business and i saw multiple companies going for some i would say not so great investors, someone uh, getting some public uh, funding, even I'm, I'm based in Poland, even here in, in Central Eastern Europe, there was a lot of capital pumped into the uh, VC industry and people without an experience in a VC space, they were taking that money, moving from banking industry to the VC because it was, you know, sexy. So, and they were investing in companies, but it didn't work well for the funders because they were not supportive and they were not understanding how startups work. So I think that's why having experienced investor with a good network who is keen to support you and who will commit to support you is so essential to grow as a, as a startup. Brilliant. Yeah, no, that's, um, that's really sound advice, I think, for anyone listening. John, you've said that it's possible to drip feed money into organizations through deals from your VC. But how popular, how normal is it 
to have that kind of drip feed investment over a number of years and have you seen companies not hit milestones and then what happens then <laughs> oh well i'll answer the second question first i think if you miss a a quarter here there that's fine if it's a couple quarters where you start to become concerned that something's broken because startup years are like a decade of real life so much happens in such a short period of time and so it's like a speedboat. If you hit a bunch of waves, that's that's okay. Maybe if you hit a little small rock, that's okay. But if you if you careen into the side of a you know mountain, that's bad. And so drip feed is the norm. You look at all the top venture capitalists of all time, it's the norm. There has yeah. been some moves shifts away from that over time, from what what, what have been known as crossover funds. So like. SoftBank or Tiger Global or KOTU, who are all great, exceptional investors, right? Historically exceptional investors. There was a tactic that was utilized by a handful of them in the last cycle of, we'll just compress series A, B, and C all in one and give it to you all at once and see how that goes because we don't have the time to like wait. Right. Um, but it seems like largely speaking, most of those folks have sort of retrenched and are really updating their investment philosophy to go back to the in your words, drip feed, drip feed mm. approach. You know, I think the most important thing for outsiders and founders who are listening or other people that are related to the ecosystem to understand is that the venture capital business works on a power law, okay? And a power law means that a small amount of companies within a portfolio will deliver the outsized return for that fund. And so what that means is that if a company is having difficulty or stops growing or their negative flat lines, then it's unlikely that that will deliver the power law level returns for that fund, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah. And so it's just kind of the nature of the business. And so every dollar that, that the fund has should always go towards the best investments within that portfolio or new investments that are believed to be the next power law uh, return company. Okay. So, and then, and then just to kind of sum that up is like, you know, our giant is all, all the partners have built companies before we've done everything from zero to IPO at the partner level. Mm -hmm. So we've seen every up and down, we've seen every issue that could have possibly happened within a company. We've made a lot of mistakes and we understand that sometimes founders have difficult quarters and that's okay. And we've also seen comeback stories where people have difficult quarters and then they end up having a monster year the following year and stuff like that. So the key is to understand when we're hitting those difficult quarters, is it that there's something that's wrong in the sales and marketing messaging and we just need to do some different tactics? Is it that the customer is saying that our product is awful? If that's the case, that we're in a bad place. Mm. Is it that we don't have the right team in place? If that's the case, that's pretty easy. That's easily fixable. Or is it that some combination of those three and we actually don't know the answer? That's really where a VC and, a, and an executive, a CEO can work and partner on. Let's solve these problems together. You know, and this is why we really love founders like, like Victor, because he's extremely transparent, extremely honest, you know, works very diligently to solve problems. And I think this is a testament to why Airly continues to, to succeed. Yeah, no. And on the back of that, I actually had another question because I had 
been watching the relationship that you have with each other and it's actually very strong and you can tell that um <laughs> he's slightly annoyed by me he wouldn't tell you that on on live but he he's somewhat annoyed by me it's like a annoying brother you know what i mean like <laughs> But the, the question I have, the question I have is, and you alluded to other people in Giant that have also grown companies. And I think for me as a founder, to have a VC that has been there, done that, is incredibly powerful because you've got experience that you can draw upon. Is that normal in VCs? Or no. are you, okay, I had a feeling you were going to say that. 92% of European VCs have never started a company. Yeah, and I think that's sad. <laughs> that's a sad state of affairs because I can see, like, if you get money from a from an organization like Giant, you'd be like, yeah, fine, I'll listen to the advice because you know that the advice is coming from experience and actually personal experience as well. Yeah, I, the short answer is like, a building a startup is like getting shoved off of a cliff with airplane parts. You have to build the airplane before it smashes to the ground. Mm -hmm. And all the while, you're getting people who've built different models of airplanes, myself, <laughs> trying to tell you how to build your airplane as you're all staring at the ground that's coming closer to you as you're about to die. And I already have a built airplane, right? Now, we have different models of airplane, right? So you're building a different one. But I know the concept of lift and drag, and I know the concept of like thrust, and I know how physics work. And so basically when I'm when we're talking to our founders, we're like, here's a brick wall you're about to run into. We have personally smashed into this brick wall before, and here's the story about that. Please drive around the brick wall. And the founders can choose to listen to us or smash into the brick wall. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think John probably you will you will agree with me, but most of our our catch ups is it's it's you telling me, Victor, I made that mistake. Do not repeat that again. <laughs> it's like it's 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 obviously it's better and easier to to learn or on on other mistakes. And yeah. And for example, John, uh, when when we started working together, he said to me, Victor, you should have CEO coach. I had one and it helped me massively. And I said, hmm, maybe that's a, that's the right choice. And I'm working with, with, with that person for a few weeks right now. And I see massive, massive improvement. And hopefully others are seeing the same. But I mean, there's some things that you can learn only by doing or making some mistakes. And this is why having someone who went through that tough path of being the, the founder and, and, and starting the startup is so, so uh, helpful for, for new founders and and people starting their, their own businesses. I also think that like when you explain it to a founder and you tell them the visceral story of what went wrong mm -hmm. and they know that the right answer is to do the opposite of what you did. Yeah. It's like a shocking moment, right? For the founder when they come to the realization of like, I have to get out of this burning house, whatever the issue is. But thank you for saving my life and I still have to get out of this burning house. How do we do that? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. What makes the job very enjoyable is that you're like, if I can help you avoid third degree burns, I'm, I'm yeah. going to do that. Yeah. But again, sometimes they just want to save the, save the cat in the house, you know what I mean? Or whatever, they have their own reasons to make the decision that they're making a decision mm -hmm. for. But you can see oftentimes when you tell them those examples 
of like 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 layoffs or something. You know what I mean? Or like firing a really good person who's just not doing their job. That's a hard skill to learn. You they know that they have to swallow that pill, and you're explaining to them that like you wasted a lot of money in the past, <laughs> like holding on to people that were not good performers, and that you need to get good at that. And it, it, again, like that's the coaching that that we hope to yeah. provide, and that I think Victor will provide. You know, once early IPOs and he can explain that to all of the and founders I, that he invests in. <laughs> and I think and I think sometimes also you need to disagree. I, I, I'm I'm not saying that we are agreeing every time when we are meeting. I'm 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 mm. listening, I'm trying to to make my own choice. Of course taking into consideration people that been there done that but i think it, it's also the, the moment to, to disagree and have a different view and say you're not right i will do that my way and maybe i will go to the to save that cat in this in this burning yeah. house and and it's also yeah. okay yeah to make that mistakes on yeah. your own no I, I think absolutely i think i would imagine if you're a investor or you you're in john's position and you said yes to everything he said he would be a bit like okay there's questions that would start to alive there's are is this actually going to work is your business going to work because if you say yes to me then are you how other people are you saying yes to you you know they're investing in you victor and investing in early you need them to have their own personality and have their own direction yeah and also uh, john is is is, is saying multiple on, on multiple occasions that saying no is as much important as saying yes so I think you, you also need to know when to say no and when to say yes. Yeah. And this is a right balance that yeah. you need to find. Yeah. Not everyone has that as well, to be honest with you. So when you did get your investors on board, did you have to restructure your board or the business or, or was it just the two of you? Uh, no, no, definitely when you are going for a new round and you are raising more capital, there's another round, new investors who are joining, they expect to have the board seat and this is totally understandable and I think standard in the in the VC world. So so after raising series A, we added person to, to our board um, and but also throughout the, this time, we changed people that are sitting on the board because of different needs. So. For example, right now, our big focus is, is to have to, how to scale our sales and marketing. And I think there are some people, the investment firm, who are better positioned to support on that challenge. So I think you, yeah. you need to look what is the biggest challenge in front of you and to have uh, effective board structures to ensure strong governance, but also strategic oversight. And if one person is better positioned to support on the sales challenges, on the growth challenges, then probably you need to consider that. But I think it's very important when we are talking about restructuring the, the board is to have a very clear communication, uh, to have transparent discussion about expectations for us as the funders of the business, but also for, for investors when it comes to roles within the, the new board structure. So when we were raising our Series A, we were saying that, okay, definitely there will be new person joining the board, but from existing board members, we are expecting some more strategic support on in that direction or, or, or this direction. So, so I think we had a very open dialogue with, with board members. And right now, I, I think we are creating a very good balanced team who can really support the whole business to, to grow yeah. and to expand. Okay. Can I add something to his note about boards? Yeah, of course. I think the, the concept of the board of directors is like from a bygone era of corporate governance, 
that like where there was no telephones and everything was done like <laughs> it was like no computers i mean and everything was done via fax and like we drove to and met you know and like that was the most important period of time i talked to victor probably more than he wants me to um like a, <laughs> a couple times a week emails whatsapps and then we have a, a call every other week. like we talk a lot and if your mm. investors aren't doing that like you should be concerned number one Number two is, is that, I mean, there are still roles and responsibilities for the board, but that respect and that, I guess I would say, control is earned over time, meaning that Victor's really going to only respond well to people that have spent the time to get to understand his business and take those ideas seriously. Now, there are moments in time where a board is extremely crucial, right? And that governance comes down to good financial hygiene, setting a good financial plan in place. You know, if the company decides to sell, is that in the best interest of the shareholders? So on and so forth. But from the day-to-day operations of a business, so much of that is done outside of the the board. Mm. Yeah. If you end up with, because let's face it, personality, you two get on. And if you've got a investor that actually you don't, you kind of grow and go, actually, I'm not a huge fan of you. I think I understand that you've invested in us and you want that money back. But actually, I don't agree with your ethics. I don't particularly agree with your the way that you, you know, you live. On a personal level, you'll clash. And actually, that can come across as from a professional level as well, because people are different. Have you seen that happen? And like, how damaging is it? Or- uh, yeah, I haven't seen that, but I, I would I would just go and and say that for me, feedback is super super important, uh, including your board members. I mean, you, you need to have very transparent and open communication. And if you are disagreeing with some decisions, the way of communication, etc., you need to take it offline properly to uh, meet one on one and just say. I disagree with the way how you are how you are doing uh, this thing, and I and I, again I, I haven't experienced that personally, but in in case of that happening, I would definitely go and and give the proper feedback to that person, and I would also expect different mm-hmm. people to give the feedback to me if if they don't like my my behavior or or the way how I'm making the decision, how I'm communicating, etc. We can yeah extrapolate that to different dimensions really, but. But I think that the feedback and having honest and direct communication is, is a key here. Yeah, zooming out, I think your cap table, the investors in your company are distributed like a bell curve. 5% of them are very helpful. 90% don't do shit. And 5% of them materially try to fuck up your company. <laughs> Whether it was knowingly or unknowingly. And... You just need to make sure that that 5% does not have control. They might yeah. make a lot of loud noises or angry emails. Um, but this is why it's so important that gravity is returned back to, to, to the startup world. Get to know your investor. Call like They're going to have shiny companies on their website. Find out the companies that are not on their website. <laughs> like Maybe that failed. You, know, you can tell a lot about a, an investor on how they behaved when a company was not doing well, right? Mm. That's incredibly important. I think that, I forget what the quote is about 
something about your values are only tested when times are hard, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, well, something that's like that. anything. Yeah. A no, smart absolutely. man, a smart, smarter man than me or smarter gal than me once said <laughs> that's your mm-hmm. value. So when it comes down to ethics and values, I think this is, again, this is where Victor really nailed it early on is like the best entrepreneurs now are not only thinking like, let's get the right capital and the right cap, the partner that can help grow my business, but that is values aligned and has a good, good reputation, right? Like a brand can be, you know, you could spend 20 years building a brand and it can evaporate overnight. You know what I mean? Look at what's um, happening with Budweiser. <laughs> yeah. <Bud Light. laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, they, they alienated the, the vast majority of their consumer um, and didn't mm. think that that would occur. So um, I, I'm not a media analyst, but uh, it, it seems like. But that it's that values aligned. That's yeah. what I'm, you know, yeah. it's a very good example. John, we looked into the EU's Green New Deal for industry, and there's a lot of generalizations about how it will make investment easier cut red tape but what is it actually and where's the money coming from and who can benefit from it i'm not an expert on the eu green deal but i think a lot of it looks and feels a lot like the u.s inflation reduction act and i think the governments are waking up to the fact that there is a massive opportunity for the west to become a leader in sustainable, decarbonized energy and transportation. This creates jobs. This creates a cleaner way of living. It's a really good opportunity and taxpayers are really happy to participate in that. I think that there's frustration that people are still involved in these petrol related wars, right? Like people don't, like the support for these wars, especially at you know, Victor's back door <laughs> in Poland is something that the population of Western democracies is largely fed up with. And so I think that when you propose things that are more sort of not nationalistic in nature, but like reinvesting in the a, a greener decarbonized future for, you know, the EU and the United States, I think that that's something that taxpayers can get really, really excited about. Uh, we'll see. I think the EU is really just trying to be on a level playing field with the U.S. because the U.S. was kind of far behind in its regulatory regime for everything related to clean technology. And then all of a sudden, it became the 800-pound gorilla with like the writing of one you know, piece of legislation. And the U.K. left the EU. Can British businesses benefit from it now it's left the EU? Um, I I, th- I think so. I think that in the and I know that the United Kingdom is also looking at similar legislation, but the UK suffers from another situation that's a little bit tough, which is like, you know, the top 100 businesses in the UK are as valuable as Apple, <laughs> you know, one US company, and yeah. there's a tall poppy syndrome in the United Kingdom, which is like don't stand out too much. Nordics has this as well. It's called Janta Lagen. We're all the same. We are not better than anybody else. That's my Swedish accent. Um, and and so when you're an entrepreneur that's looking at that versus going to the U.S. where it's like, you know, fire rockets, build electric cars, do whatever you want to do. Let's rock and roll. You know what I mean? Like, where are you going to start your company? You know? However, I think a lot of that is changing. I think what COVID did was it said, well, entrepreneurs have to stay in place no matter where they are to build their company. And now the capital is seeking them wherever they are. Mm. 
And so the capital is coming for the entrepreneurs. And then people realized that a handful of companies were being started in their own backyards and that there was a whole set of employees who worked at these startups in the United Kingdom and the Baltics in Europe. And those wanted to become entrepreneurs. And then there was venture capital in Europe to support it. So now that ecosystem is very evolved. So my belief is that over the next 10 years, um, and I think I share this belief with a lot of this sort of, you know, sort of European-based VCs is that it's going to be quite a renaissance for the startup community here in the next decade plus. Um, the, the question is just that the, like, the regulators need to be okay. supportive rather than draconian. Like if Italy is banning chat GPT, it's like, okay, that's probably not the right approach. Yeah, and if, if, <laughs> if I can add on top of that, I mean, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of Brexit, but I think that it is a great opportunity. And from our perspective, Post-Brexit, it forced in the UK to revise, revise environmental standards. So they needed to set up working group to develop recommendation for using technologies like we are doing. And, and probably they will be faster than European Union. And European Union is working on that for the last few years, but because of Brexit, they needed to move faster. So I think there you can you can think about that example. Uh, like it, it can happen in any other segment, in any other sector. That sometimes because of in that case Brexit, you need to move much much faster to revise some some of this stuff that you are doing, which can be beneficial for 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 businesses and the whole ecosystem. Brilliant. And finally. One last question to you, John. Do you think VCs have a bad name? And if so, what would you say to counteract that? I think there's bad humans in every business line, I think. But I, I believe that the profession is still largely highly regarded insofar that every one of the top Fortune 10 companies was started with a venture backing. And it's often not considered what happens to, and goes on behind the scenes. Like... What a lot of founders don't know is that VCs spent a lot of time in their first three funds convincing large asset managers, family offices, endowments, pension funds, convincing them to allocate capital towards the startup. And then we help make those dreams come true by handing the capital over to those founders and supporting them along the way and continuing to convince those pension funds through strong returns that they should continue to reinvest in those companies as they scale. So. Yeah, I think there's there's bad actors in every industry, but I still believe that it's probably the least maligned finance professional. <laughs> and Victor, what advice would you offer business owners looking for investment? I think I, I mentioned it already, but I think it's about preparation, about developing a solid business plan before starting the, the fundraising process, before reaching out to your investors, building the pitch deck, uh, the presentation, overview of your business, also some, maybe not on, on the pre-seed stage, but later uh, some financial projections to showcase the, the startup potential. Um, I think uh, again, I, we we were really uh, structured when it comes to the to the process. So we we prepared the full list of of right investors that we wanted to target. We focused on investors with expertise and interest in the climate sector, and we started building building relationship with them. So we asked friends in our network to make some warm introductions. We were going for some networking events, conferences, and we are trying to get in front of these people and then um, tailoring the pitch, 
customizing the way how you're talking and and uh, depending on the interest and some concerns of potential investors but i think the most important thing is being patient i mean understanding the raising that raising capital is time consuming process and requires dedication and it's not happening overnight you need to prepare for a long run and i i like using that analogy but it's not a sprint it's a, it's a marathon and you need to to talk with a number of investors and to find the right one for your business. Perfect. Thank you so much. And thank you both for joining us today. It's been brilliant. Really, really interesting. And I'm sure our listeners will feel the same. Thanks for having us. Thank you a lot, Will. This podcast has been brought to you by Good Citizens, an eyewear brand like no other, born to untrash the planet of single-use plastic. Use the discount code GREEN20 and get $20 off greencitizens.com.au and help untrash the planet. I'm Will Richardson at the Green Element Group, an environmental management consultancy with 20 years of experience. For more information on the Green Element and everything we have discussed today, please check the show notes. If you have any feedback or questions, you can get in contact with us at Green Element on social media. And please don't forget to follow this podcast in your favourite app please write us a review. It really, really helps this podcast and help others solve sustainability problems.